You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs 25 and find verse 12. You know, a lot of Sundays in this series, we have been in uh, several different Proverbs. That will be true again this morning, uh, but 2512 really captures uh, the heart of what God has for us this morning. Uh, as you're turning there, if you're new, welcome to Citizens Church. My name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here. We're thrilled that you are worshiping with us. If you're watching online, uh, wherever you are, thanks for uh, joining in. We're glad to have you. Um, real quick, I want to make sure that we all heard something that was announced at the very beginning of our service. I know not everybody was in here for that, and it's really, really important. But next week, Uh, is our One Kingdom Conference. It's our annual, second annual uh, theology conference. It's Friday and Saturday, and this year, the whole weekend is devoted to uh, wisdom. It's a bit of a capstone uh, to the series that we've been in for um, over a year now. Um, Zach Eswine, who's an author and pastor and doctor, uh, he, I've talked about him a lot in this series. He has shaped so much of uh, this series for us. He's going to be here uh, as our keynote speaker for the conference in sessions on Friday night and Saturday uh, morning. And then also he'll be here uh, Sunday morning uh, for our services. So really excited uh, to learn from him and to host him. Uh, but also in the conference on Saturday, we have several breakout sessions on wisdom, uh, wisdom and grief, wisdom and parenting, wisdom and relationships, wisdom and conflict, and wisdom and work. It will all be so helpful and formative and incredible. And so uh, many of you are registered to be a part of that. Uh, if you're not, please consider joining us. Maybe you can't make all of it, but you could make some of it. Uh, and we'd love to have you for whatever you can uh, be here for. You can register online. Uh, having said that, I do want to say that we're getting close to the end of our wisdom series. Uh, we'll, we'll probably be in it anywhere for two to four weeks or something like that. Candidly, I've struggled to know how to land the plane. Uh, the series has been really, really meaningful to me, and so I'm having a hard time knowing how to close it out, but we are uh, getting to the close. And this morning, I want to consider something that we've spent time on already in other sermons. Um, it's been a, kind of a minor chord in several sermons, and I want it to play as the major chord this morning. I don't know enough about music to know if that was the right way to use those, but uh, it felt right. Um, So this morning, if I could just put it into a few words, it's wisdom and correction. One of the most significant differences between the wise and the fool in the book of Proverbs is how they respond when they're corrected. Um, Proverbs uses a lot of different words to describe this. Uh, correction, uh, it uses a lot of synonyms, like it'll, it'll call it rebuke or instruction or reproof or discipline or chastisement, to use a really old English word. And to different degrees, what all of these words are describing is they're describing a moment that I think is probably pretty familiar to all of us. And it's a moment where uh, wisdom confronts us or wisdom calls for change in my life or in your life. And so you know this experience, right? Like there's, um, I'll speak for me, there's pride in my life and foolishness in my life and immaturity in my life and sin in my life. And, and maybe I'm reading God's word 
and feel confronted and corrected, or maybe I'm listening to a sermon and I feel convicted, or maybe a friend who loves me and is wise comes to me and says, hey, I see this foolishness in your life, or they point out something that, that falls short of wisdom. You know that moment, right? Can, can you think about a time where that's happened to you, or maybe just the most recent time that's happened for you? Maybe it was in this room on a Sunday morning, sometime in this series. Maybe it was in home group at some point in the last few months. But that interaction of being confronted, convicted, corrected, there is a way that you and I respond to those moments. And there's a way that that response is wise, and there's a way that that response is foolish. And over and again, the book of Proverbs contrasts those two kinds of responses. And the contrast, hear me, it's not between those who need correction and those who don't. We all need it. The contrast is between those who respond wisely and those who don't. So hear it from a couple of Proverbs. Proverbs 25, 12, where you are in your Bible. Taryn read both of these for us. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Contrast that to Proverbs 29, 1. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Do you hear it? Both these Proverbs are about reproof, it's correction. And we don't know the details. Maybe someone's being corrected for pride or anger or envy or greed or a pattern of foolishness. We don't get the details. The focus is not on the content of the correction. It's about the response to correction. And we get two truths. I want to draw two truths out of each of these. The first is this. Correction rejected breaks you. It has a fracturing effect on your, on your soul. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Correction rejected, it breaks you. Correction comes, reproof comes according to this proverb. And what's the response? It's a stiff neck. It's a metaphor that you probably don't use and I don't use. Jesus used it to describe those who reject him. Stephen used it in Acts chapter 7 in response to those who are about to kill him. You probably don't use that phrase. I've never called someone stiff-necked. But there's another metaphor that means the exact same thing that's more familiar, and it's the idea of a hard heart. He who is often reproved yet hardens his heart is what it's describing. And then listen to what happens. Will suddenly be broken beyond healing. How scary is that? Uh, raise your hand if you want to sign up for the broken beyond healing way of living, right? Uh, it describes this point of no return. So there's a healing that your heart needs and my heart needs, and correction is a really important part of that healing. Um, it's, it's calling out foolishness and sin, and it's inviting change. And so every instance of correction is fighting for that healing in my life and in your life. And every instance of ignoring that or rejecting that it's like a barrier that builds around the heart. It's like this hard layer that makes every subsequent moment of correction less likely to take. And that fractures you. That stunts your life and my life. It's why a hard-hearted 22-year-old is a different kind of problem than a hard-hearted 62-year-old. Uh, the difference is one of them has been rejecting correction for two decades the other has been rejecting correction for over half a century. Age does not equal wisdom. For some, years of life is simply more years of befriending foolishness. And at some point, according to Proverbs, all of that rejecting, all of that um, uh, 
stubbornness in response to correction and conviction. It builds up layers of hardness and layers of stubbornness. And eventually there's this point where something breaks, according to Proverbs 29.1. Correction rejected breaks you. The other side is correction received beautifies you. And I'm using that language really intentionally because that's the illustration behind Proverbs 25.12. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold, that's jewelry, is a wise reprover to a listening ear. I love that illustration. It's saying the person, when someone's correcting you wisely, we'll talk about this, but it's important that it says a wise reprover to a listening ear. But when somebody in wisdom is offering correction in a wise way, they're offering you something beautiful. And if you respond wisely, it's like you're being adorned with and beautified by wisdom. Listen to another translation. As an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. It's like getting your ears pierced, which I've never done, but maybe one day. But I was with my daughter a year ago or so when she got her ears pierced, and what I watched was I watched a moment of pain when a needle pierced her ear, and I watched her wince a bit, and then the pain, after the pain, they put this beautiful diamond earring in her ear. It was a small diamond, her dad's a pastor, but it was beautiful nonetheless, right? It was this gorgeous thing, and she, she has them in her ears now. But that movement, there's this moment of pain, and what's left behind is beautiful. That's what responding wisely to correction is like. The correction is trying to make space in your life for something beautiful to take hold, and it hurts, it can pierce, it's never fun, but what remains after is something virtuous. So like, let's say someone conf confronts me about unrighteous anger in my life, which has happened before, and they offer correction, and it pierces, it hurts, it's uncomfortable, but if I respond wisely, and by God's grace, what can happen is patience can begin to take the place where unrighteous anger once existed. Anger is ugly, patience is precious and attractive, and correction received can cultivate something beautiful in me, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Correction rejected breaks you, correction received beautifies you. Which one describes your relationship to correction? How do you respond? Maybe it's God's word, again, maybe it's a sermon, maybe it's a friend, but when something confronts you or when someone corrects you and calls for righteous change, how do you respond? Just historically, how do you respond? Do you reject it or do you receive it? Um, do you have a hard heart or a listening ear? Is there unhealed brokenness in you or is there a growing beauty in you? Three things to consider from here in light of that contrast. You need to consider the need for correction and then just want to dig into what the foolish response looks like and what the wise response looks like. So let me ask it as a question. Why do we need correction? I don't, I don't want to assume that we all know this. These moments of uh, reproof and rebuke and correction, why do we need it? Specifically as Christians, why do we need it? There's a short answer to that question, and then there's a long answer to that question, and I'm going to give the long answer to that question, which is shocking to everyone I know. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. And find verses 21 and 22 and 23. This has been true in this whole series, but I want to make especially explicit this morning that we are reading Proverbs on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
And so we need to root this conversation there. It might feel like a tangent. It's not. As Christians, those of us who follow Jesus, we view all of this. We view correction and rebuke and conviction through the lens of a work that Jesus has begun in us and will one day complete in us. So to say it one way, correction is an important part of our sanctification. And I want to unpack all that. Colossians 1.21, this is right after the Christ song. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. It's five verses, and it's, it's some of the five most Christologically rich verses in the whole Bible. It's beautiful. And then right after that song are verses 21, 22, and 23. And in Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, this is called the propitio, which basically means this is his thesis statement. It's the point behind the whole letter. And I want to walk through each verse. In verse 21, it says this, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So when I read that, I need to read it in the first person. And I was once alienated and hostile mind, doing evil deeds. This is all of us before Jesus alienated from God. Uh, We are separated from him is what that means, but not only are we separated from him, at the same time, we're hostile to him. So the very thing we need, we are opposed to in our sinful state, in our depravity, that comes out as this sinful cycle of needing God and rejecting God, which means there's evil deeds that flood from our heart out into our life, selfishness and pride and idolatry and lust and envy and all the things that wisdom has confronted us about in this series. This is all of us without Jesus. I mean, there is this natural impulse of the human heart to state our problem nicer than it actually is, but over and again, the Bible is going to uh, use language to tell us that we as humans are far worse than we think we are. The verbs or the adjectives I use are different than the ones that God's word uses, alienated, hostile, evil, dead in sin. That's verse 21. That's all of our condition apart from Jesus. And 22 is next, but before you look at it with me, consider that it could read any number of ways. If 21's true, alienated, hostile, engaged in evil deeds, 22 could read, so God in his righteous wrath rids the world of all evil, including you and me. And it doesn't say that. It says this, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Verse 20 just said something very similar about Jesus. It says that he makes peace by the blood of his cross. This is really good news. In our state of being alienated and hostile and evil, what does Jesus do? He goes to the cross to make peace so that instead of alienated and hostile, we can be accepted and forgiven and loved. Why? What compels Jesus to make peace by his bloody cross? Why does he reconcile us? through his death. Do you know why? Because he loves us. He loves us. Um, Last week I was in Israel with about 60 people from our church. It was my fourth time to be in Israel. And I've told you about a place there before. It's a place that's really special to me. It holds a lot of significant moments for me. And it's, uh, they just call it Caiaphas's house in the old city of Jerusalem. And it's called Caiaphas's house because that's where a guy named Caiaphas lived uh, at the time of Jesus. Uh, He was high priest at the time that Jesus was tried and sentenced to death. And they know that it's his house because about 10 to 20 feet underneath his house is a prison cell. 
And it's in that prison cell that Jesus spent the night before his crucifixion. So he's crucified on a Friday. He spends the night there on Thursday. That day he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was beaten, and then he's taken to this prison cell. And in complete darkness, our Savior lay betrayed and bloody for an entire night. And we went there. Jesus was likely dropped through a hole in the roof down. We descended steps to go and just be where he was. And we stood on the ground that caught his blood, and we leaned on the walls that heard his prayers. And every time I'm there in this incredibly sober place, I just think this thought, Jesus, you could have said no. You didn't have to do this. Something about being there, you just lean into just the sheer uh, pain he must have been in and just how lonely that must have felt and just how excruciating it must have been, not just what he had been through, but what he knew he would go through in the next 24 hours. And he had prayed to God, if this cup could pass from me, let it pass from me. And he could have bailed. Nothing could have stopped him from rescuing himself. I mean, think about it. If the waves on the sea were no match for him, what could a prison do to him, right? If, if demons bowed down before him, what soldier could restrain him? If he's the light of the world, there's just no darkness that could hold him. And so I just have this thought every time, what kept you here, Jesus? What compelled you to suffer? You didn't deserve it. You didn't have to endure it. Why? And the answer is because Jesus loves the Father and because he loves you. Romans 5.8 says, God proves his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves me. He loves you. One of the responsibilities I feel as a preacher is to never grow tired of the simple reminder that church Jesus loves you. All who have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, verse 22 says that we have been made right with God, reconciled by his death. He loves us. And then the verse goes on. Listen to what it says. Verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So you and I were alienated. We were hostile. We were evil. Jesus reconciles us. He makes peace through his bloody cross. And one day we will be holy and blameless and above accusation. You see that? So we get who we were before Jesus, then we get who we one day will be with Jesus. We were hostile, one day we'll be made holy. We were alienated, one day we'll be above accusation. And I'm no longer hostile to God like I was before Jesus, but I am not yet holy like I will be when Jesus returns. And so there's a movement to this that we have to see to understand what God has for us this morning. He loves us and... He is changing us. We were hostile. He will make us holy. I am justified. I will be glorified. Right now, I'm being sanctified. It's why Paul says, be faithful. Don't move. Hold on. Don't stray away from the gospel of Jesus and the hope of the gospel because Jesus is doing a work in you. He loves us and he's changing us. There are two distortions that we have to confront. 
The first distortion is that some of us believe that we need to change in order to be loved. We gut the gospel of its scandalous mercy. And we say, until I'm holy and blameless and above accusation, God can't love me. So I wonder if for some of us, being here right now is a part of that. Our church attendance, our Bible reading, our serving, our praying, our doing, it's all about trying to become something that God will one day love. And Jesus says, no, while you were alienated, while you were hostile, it's words that describe the very worst of who we've ever been and in the worst that we've ever been. It's in that very moment that God pours out his love for us in Christ. Change is not a prerequisite for love. The love precedes and then produces the change. And so he loves you right now. Not the version of you on the other side of the change that he wants to bring. He loves the version of you that right now is in need of change. The other distortion is the opposite. Some believe that the love of Jesus means that no change is needed. And so we confuse that Jesus loving us as we are means he leaves us where we are. And it's not true. And so we believe in this shallow story that Jesus died so that we can one day get to heaven, and it doesn't really matter how I live until then, and it makes Christianity only about the afterlife, as if Jesus doesn't care how I live my current life. And so we signed up for the love, but we didn't sign up for the change, and that kind of relationship with Jesus just doesn't exist. He reconciles us in order to present us holy and blameless. That's a work that he desires to do right now. He loves you and he's changing you. And so Paul puts it like this in verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Can I tell you something that I hope isn't news? This is the great hope that I have had for this series that we've been in for over a year. That wisdom would point us to Jesus and make us more like Jesus. That, that wisdom would be the vessel through which we are maturing into Christ-likeness. And so we've said it over and again. Wisdom is a person. It's Jesus. We grow wise in relationship with him because he loves us and he's changing us. So we did a week on wisdom and words. You know why? Because Jesus loves us and he's changing us and we need to learn to speak like him. We did a week on wisdom and a wise spirit. You know why? Because Jesus loves us. He's changing us. And we need to learn to be slow to anger like him. We did a week on the types of fools. Weeks on the types of fools. Because Jesus loves us and is changing us to be less like a fool and more like him. We're not coming to wisdom in hopes that we would learn a few tips on how to be better at life. We're coming to wisdom in hopes that we would be conformed into the image of God's son. That he might be the firstborn among many sisters and brothers. Hear it again, church. The great aim of our life is to look like our Savior, to grow in our knowledge of the love he has for us, and through that grace, to grow in our likeness to him. That's the long answer to the question. Why do we need correction as Christians? Because Jesus loves us, and he's changing us. And I hope to one day be mature in Christ. I won't be completely mature in him until Jesus returns but by God's grace, I am maturing. We've said it before. I'm not who I was. I'm also not who I will be. But by God's grace, I can be day by day, moment by moment, over time, faithfully conformed into the image of our Savior, who's the most true human, and he invites us to become in him who we were always meant to be. So if we go back to our Proverbs and view them through the lens 
of the change that Jesus wants to bring on this side of his death and resurrection, awaiting his return. Proverbs 29.1, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. This thing that Jesus wants to do in us, if, we, if part of that healing comes through reproof and conviction and correction, and if we over and again reject that, it perpetuates brokenness. It leaves us stuck in ways of living that don't look like Jesus. Proverbs 25, 12, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Correction received beautifies, and what we mean by beautifies is it, is it allows some of the beauty of Jesus, some of the full, perfect humanity of Jesus. As we hold our lives up against that, it brings a kind of formative change that is beautiful. It's like being adorned by God's grace, imperfectly, slowly, but faithfully looking like Jesus. Okay, I want to tease this out together. We've been a bit in the sky, and I want to come down onto the street and get on the ground, but I need your help. Um, Would you think with me? This is going to require honesty, but you're all looking especially honest right now. Um, Would you think with me about something in you that needs to change? So I'm not asking about a circumstance Uh, I'm asking about something that pertains to character. What needs to change? Um, And it's a bit intrusive, right? But maybe it's something we've talked about in this series. Maybe it's anger and an unwise relationship to anger, pride that makes you quick to speak and slow to listen. Maybe it's an addictive sin pattern. Maybe it's envy and jealousy. Maybe it's sexual sin of some kind. Maybe it's who you are in a specific relationship. Maybe it's the, uh, the... dysfunction that you contribute in your marriage. Maybe it's something that needs to change in you as a parent. And I know that it's vulnerable, but I believe it's important. For me, what it is, I've thought about this all week. There's a host of things, but the one that keeps coming to mind is how hypercritical I can be. There's a, there's a part of me that can be given over to such discontentment and that comes out of a hypercriticism to the, uh, those around me. And it's a part of me that does not look like Jesus. So think with me about what that is in you. I prayed for this moment all week long and just prayed, I can't do it, I'm not gifted enough, but just prayed that the Spirit of God would bring to mind something for each of us. Now, whatever came to mind, here's what I want you to do. I want you to say it out loud. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, I want you to imagine a conversation happens around that thing. So uh, someone comes to you, and wisely and lovingly. So in 25.12, it talks about the wise reprover. That's a really important adjective. It doesn't talk about the judgmental reprover or the volatile reprover or the unhealthy reprover or the reprover that projects all of their own stuff onto you. It's a wise reprover. And so imagine with me a wise corrector comes to you around an area of foolishness in your life, and they say, hey, I see this in you. Hey, you don't handle anger very well. Hey, you're not wise with your words. Jesus loves you. He's changing you. And here is something in you that I see that he wants to change, that needs to change. How do you respond? How do you feel about even that kind of thought experiment, right? Uh, The foolish response, the response that breaks, that stiffens the neck, that hardens the heart, it takes on a few different forms. Um, It happens a few different ways. and, And maybe... Uh, one of these 
describes you. Proverbs 9, 7 through 8 says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs 12, 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. It's a defensive response. It's describing when correction comes and the response of the person corrected is defensiveness. So I, I go after the person that's bringing the reproof. Correct a fool and a fool will hurt you is what it's saying. And what this might look like, let's just say you and I are having the conversation about me. And you come to me and you lovingly and you wisely say, hey, Jamin, you can be hypercritical at times and I've seen that in you. Or you call out a number of foolish things in me and you bring that correction. And if I say, well, it's not like you're perfect. Who are you to judge me? Or maybe I start going through my list of all the things that I think are wrong with you. You know what I'm doing? I'm changing the subject. Instead of receiving what's being said, I'm attacking my wise reprover so that I can defend myself from having to deal with the correction. And that's a foolish response. Whoever corrects a fool gets himself injured. And hear me, friend, a lifetime of responding to correction defensively like that, it will break me beyond healing. Is that how you would respond? Proverbs 16.32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Proverbs 1.32, for the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. So there's a foolish response that's defensive, that attacks, and then there's a foolish response that's dismissive. It just ignores it. The complacency of fools destroys them. What it means is fools don't care when they're corrected. And it's not like everyone explodes in anger. It's less of like a clenching of fists and more of a shrugging of shoulders, right? Or the simple, they care for a moment, but then they turn away. And so maybe what this looks like is you come to me and lovingly and wisely say, Jamin, you can be hypercritical at times. Or you point out a number of foolish things in my life. And I say, you know what? That's probably true. And I should work on that. Or maybe there's even a moment of, of intense remorse that happens. And then, you know what happens? Nothing. Nothing changes. Nothing sticks. Correction is met by a complacency that leaves me knowing something is wrong, but not caring enough to change. There's a fear I have, and I think it's a righteous fear in my own life, but it's a fear of living a life that is overdiagnosed and undercured at the same time. And the foolish response is the complacent response, the dismissive response. In a lifetime of responding to correction complacently like that, it will break me beyond healing. It will leave me stuck in ways of living that don't look like Jesus. Is that how you would respond? Historically, is that maybe describing how you've responded to correction in the past? Or would you respond wisely? The wise response, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. It's saying that reproof and conviction and correction, it's ultimately from a God who loves like a father who is so smitten with his ch children. His discipline is, is to those that he delights in. And so the conviction and the correction is not God's rejection, it's God's affection for his children who he loves and is changing. And then Proverbs 6.23 says this, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. 
brings us back to where we started. It's like jewelry. It's something that beautifies, it, it cultivates, it leads to flourishing and adornment. Like an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. And so the posture of the wise towards correction is the wise see correction as a loving invitation to grow and become like Jesus, to mature in him, to become like him. And so you come to me. And you, in, in wisdom, in love, say, Jamin, you can be hypercritical at times, or you call out any number of foolish things in my life, and if there is a shred of wisdom in me around all that, I listen. And I consider what you're offering is not an attack, but an invitation into more of Jesus. And, and not only am I open to correction as an invitation, but I'm also afraid that if I miss this, if I reject this, if I ignore this, I might miss him. I might miss what he's trying to do in my life. And it doesn't mean that change just magically happens. It doesn't. It's, we're a mess, and it's stumbling forward, and it requires faithfulness, and it's not overnight. But a wise response to correction asks, what is God trying to do in me and sees it as an invitation from God who delights in us and has a vision for a flourishing future for you and for me and a lifetime of being open to correction and curious about what God's doing in it and seeing it as a loving invitation, it will slowly and imperfectly but faithfully change me. Where are you in all this? When wise correction comes your way, how do you respond? Um, in some ways, we're all being corrected about how we respond to correction. And so it's, it's, a, it's a relevant and timely and deeply personal moment that God's inviting all of us into, myself included. Two things to say as we close. I just feel a, a pastoral burden in two directions, and then I'll pray. The first is this. There's something that I've repeated a lot today and it's something that's really easy and dangerous to gloss over. And here's what it is. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Christ died for you. Christian, in him you have forgiveness and freedom. And some of us, when we feel conviction, or some of us, when we are corrected or rebuked, we have a different kind of foolish response where instead of attacking the person correcting, we attack ourselves. And we just rehearse all these shameful thoughts that I have about me. Would you hear something? Correction is not the same as accusation. They don't come from the same place. Jesus corrects. Satan accuses. And only one of them speaks for all of eternity. Long after Satan is silenced, Jesus is still speaking. And so if you've processed all of this, like if you've thought about the parts of you that need to change, and you've thought about the things in you that don't look like Jesus, and your takeaway is, I'm so terrible. I'm unlovable. I will never be doing better than I am right now. That kind of despairing is not the mark of wisdom. That kind of despairing is not the mark of one who believes that love precedes the change. 2 Corinthians 3 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. It says Jesus frees us and brings change in us, not as we despair over the wrong in us that we fixate on, but as we behold his glory 
and his beauty as the one who is all the things that we need to be and wish we were and loves us still. Second, I don't know how else to say this. I'm sure there are better words. But the second thing is just a plea to respond wisely. Would you respond wisely this morning? Um, Like, does anyone in your life have permission to confront you in love over the parts of you that don't look like Jesus? Proverbs 27.5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Is there anyone in your life that you've said, please don't hide your love from me? When you see something in me that's hurting me and hurting others, you have my permission to love me by telling me wisely, gently, but be honest with me. Or better than that, what if? Just as an act of obedience before God, what if the thing that you thought about, if the Spirit brought to mind something that needs to change, if there was any conviction over something in your life, whatever myriad of things it could be, that thing that you thought about, what if instead of waiting for someone to correct you, you just confessed? What if you initiated the conversation with those close to you, in home group later today or later this week, whoever it is that are those people that God has placed in your life to be the ones that you're following Jesus together, shaping one another, sharpening one another, confessing to one another, what if you just made obedient plans now to say, this is in me and I'm not gonna wait for somebody else to out me, I'm going to confess and ask for help and receive grace, not so that God will one day love us, but because God has lavishly poured his love on us and he in his mercy and grace is changing us to become more like who we were always meant to be. God, we love you and we thank you and we need you. I don't know, God, maybe it was all a little bit more angsty than it needed to be. But at the same time, God, I just don't want us to waste our time playing church. There's so much room for grace and we need to be patient and we need to move at a pace of mercy and forgiveness and faithfulness. And at the same time, Jesus, I just think years with you should amount to looking more and more like you. And you love us enough to hold that out in front of us. And an essential part of looking more like you is having this rhythm in our life of seeing, as painful as it is, seeing the parts of us that wisdom would confront and that you in love would invite us out of sin and into freedom, sanctification. So would you do it, Lord? And God, even for some of us, if we, um, if we don't have something specific in mind, maybe we're doing really great and there's not like a specific sin or pattern of foolishness. Would we just in obedience take some sort of step still? 
Lord, for those who, gosh, maybe even, God, there's somebody that is just absolutely enslaved to a pattern of sin and secrecy and hiding. And what's happened is correction has come and they've rejected and it's fallen and they've been complacent. And in your mercy, today is the day, God, where they would walk out in faithfulness and obedience and say, more than I love this sin, I love my Savior. And, and, and more afraid of the consequences. I'm afraid of what a lifetime of hiding will do to me. Would you, Holy Spirit, just meet us? We love you and we thank you. Shall we pray? Amen.